0: Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow
1: brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to 3rd Love, you can have both. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. This week's news has galvanized a new wave of conversations about what's at stake in the political landscape.
2: We talk about the week's news and nuance, civility and moderation, and share my conversation with Christina Daltzer, the author of Vox.
1: This is Sarah from the left and Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsy Politics. No shouting,
2: no insults, plenty of nuance. everyone. Welcome to our Friday episode of Fancy Politics. Usually, we try to keep our Friday episodes a little shorter. We'll do our best. No promises about that. No promises. I'm very excited to be talking with Christina Dolcher, the author of Vox, which is kind of a modern take on The Handmaid's Tale. It's about a world in which An extreme religious right has taken over the United States government and forced women to speak only 100 words a day. And you have like a bracelet that's like a Fitbit that shocks you if you go over the number of words that you're allowed to say. But it was a fascinating discussion with Christina about what led her to write this book and what's happening politically. So stick around for that. But first, we're going to talk about lots of things that have been in the news this week and a little bit of listener feedback.
1: The first thing we wanted to talk about was the latest news on the disappearance of Saudi Arabian journalist Jamal Khashoggi, and oh man, the reporting on this is so difficult to read and to take in. It is an increasingly likely that he was murdered in a gruesome way within the Saudi consulate in Turkey. That's what the Turkey officials are reporting. And in the midst of the increasing gruesome, violent things we're learning about What allegedly happened to him, our administration seems to be going in the opposite direction and becoming more and more defensive of Saudi Arabia. Our Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, went and met with the Saudi royalty, was seen shaking hands and glad-handing. The president has become defensive on their behalf. We did learn as we started recording that Steve Mnuchin is not attending the economic forum that the crown prince was hosting. So that's a small positive movement. But... I was listening to the president go on and on about how it's so important that we think about our interests and we have these relationships with Saudi Arabia and all that could be true and is true. And I just have to think, at what point do we acknowledge that that's not the only important thing in America? And I'm sure we had lots of economic interest at play with Germany before World War II But but at what point do we decide a nation has behaved in violation of our principles and values and our economic interests are not the only thing that we can consider in deciding whether or not to act on it? It's a slippery
2: ramp, too, because Mm -hmm. if we communicate with respect to this incident that the economic cost to us of being punitive towards Saudi Arabia is too high. What what ups the game from here? You know, what does Saudi Arabia do next? What are we giving permission for people to do mm-hmm. if they have enough of an economic interest to us? We are literally putting a price on our values. And I'm not ready to go to war over this. I'm, in fact, quite fearful that this will lead to war. I think often about Franz Ferdinand in the beginning of World War I. I do not want military conflict about this. But I also don't want our president announcing to the world that the United States can be purchased.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and I just, let me put on my pragmatic hat for for a minute. If we have such important economic and security interests tied up with Saudi Arabia, then wouldn't we want to think long and hard about the increasing likelihood that leadership will come to the crown prince who there was this 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 action makes no sense. This journalist was not a real threat to the kingdom. He was just writing about suppressing outsider views. Like, he was not leading some sort of armed takeover of the Saudi Roy family. And so, you know, he this, this decision is reflective of someone who is, as, as many of the moves that the crown prince has made, is reflective of someone who wants total control, who is thirsty for power and control, and who is willing to do anything to get it, imprisoning his own relatives, this gruesome murder. And so I, that has to be in consideration, too. Like, that's a part of protecting our interest is thinking about who we're dealing with, what kind of decisions they make, how, how can we best... And that doesn't mean, again, trying to remove him or put somebody else in power. That's not what I'm talking about. But being, you know, eyes wide open about who we're dealing with and what that means for our interest surely has to come into play at some point as well. And the president has injected a lot of domestic angles into this
2: story. By the way, he's talked about it. I cannot understand why the president compared the way we're listening to Saudi Arabia on this to Brett Kavanaugh. I can't. I don't. mm, I can't. It was almost like he just pushed a button intended to ignite a second wave of anger about that Mm. and how offensive to everyone involved, to the people who love Jamal Khashoggi to Brett Kavanaugh's family, to everyone involved to make that comparison, to all the women still nursing those wounds. Like, that's horrible. Horrible that he did that.
1: It's disgusting.
2: And also all of the language about how he wasn't a citizen. It so deeply wounds me, again, for all of the people who loved him and all of the people who love someone in this country who came from a different place. You know, and it just... I. I think the president is riding high on this sense that he won the Kavanaugh fight. And so now is the time to double down on every strategy that got him elected in 2016. And I guess I personally am just in a very different place than I was in 2016. And I'm so much more attuned to the impact of statements like this that I've, I've been incredibly
1: discouraged by the way he's talked about this. And it feels deliberate. And I have to believe history won't smile on it fondly. I don't think those pictures of Mike Pompeo are going to go down in the history books in quite the way he thinks they will. I was
2: surprised that Mike Pompeo was so kind of amateur that he let a quote out of his mouth like, I don't want to talk about the facts. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: What do you want to talk about, Secretary Pompeo, if not the Mm -hmm. facts of what happened? What? What is the point of all of this? They didn't want to talk about the facts, of course they didn't. So why are you here? Why are you holding court? Why does the president keep referring to the king? I think that's a strange thing that he talks yeah. about him as the king without his name. I get that I, I mean maybe he's just out of Twitter characters, but the deference in tone from the president mm-hmm. of the United States to a monarch in a situation like this is also just jarring to me. The whole situation has been jarring, and I hope that we will be in a position next week to tell you more about confirmed facts and a proportionate response from the United States that has congressional support. I don't feel super confident about that, but that's where we would like to be when we talk about this again. Before then, there was a New York Times piece that we cannot avoid discussing, because Mm -hmm. it felt a little bit like it was addressed to us. I'm sure it wasn't. (laughs) But the title of the piece was, Does This Moment in History Call for More Nuance or Less? It was written by John Herman. Usually in the conversations about, should we be civil, you know, all of the back and forth on ugly things that have been said by either side, and who's more civil, less civil, I think, what a nonsense conversation this is. Mm. But... This piece was instructive to me because I started reading it through the lens of what a nonsense conversation this is. And by reading with an open mind something that I was inclined to disagree with, I learned some things. What was your reaction Mm -hmm. before I get into what I learned, Sarah?
1: Well, I don't think, you know, as I got further on, I don't think he was talking about us and particularly the ways we use nuance. I mean, he says, today the loudest calls for nuance are coming from the opposition to the opposition. People united less by a coherent politics than a belief that the politics of others, not those actually in power, but the aggrieved mob questioning that power, have gone too far. I mean, it is the pet concern of publications like The Federalist and National Review and those less so than before the election of certain never-Trump conservative pundits. So obviously, that's not the camp we are. We're not asking for the resistance to be um, nuanced, at least not in that term. But I did think that, As I read it, I thought our understanding of nuance has shifted since we started. I think that there is a reason our book is called, I think you're wrong, but I'm listening, a guide to grace-filled political conversation as opposed to a guide to nuance-filled conversation. That was a deliberate choice on our part. Because I think what you were saying from the beginning of your very first blog post on on my old blog that was titled nuance that kind of led us to adopt that word as a rallying cry was not – don't feel strongly about things. Every, nothing's simple. And we've said this before. I mean, you can feel passionately about something. But nuance is to just accept that you could get things wrong or to accept that other pe- people feel strongly and to not remove people's humanity as you discuss both sides of these strong emotions and, strong, and, and policies and politics. And so, I, I mean, I think our understanding – I think people – Sometimes come to our podcast expecting us to always find the middle and the compromise. And that's not what we do. Oftentimes we are both firmly aligned in the way that that someone, often the administration, is is acting is wrong under, you know, under any sort of definition. And so I I, I I again also went into it like ready to be offended and then think and then started to think like, I don't think that's what he's talking about. And I think what he the criticism he lobs at those who use nuance in that way is fair. I think he I think It's fair to say the bigger issue here is not necessarily the lack of nuance when you're talking about certain groups, but um, that sometimes you do need a bluntness in what is wrong or right.
2: I think what I really pulled out of this that was so helpful to me, two two things. First, he acknowledged that nuance is required for conversation. Mm Mm-hmm. And his point is that nuance is not useful politically because politics is a raw power struggle. Mm -hmm. And I think that is where we're talking past each other in the civility conversation as well. And all of the people um, on social media who like to decry moderates as part of tearing the United States apart, there is a difference between your political engagement, and your political conversation. Now, they should impact one another. But I get that distinction, and that distinction wasn't clear to me before reading this Mm -hmm. piece. I think that was a really helpful way to think about this. And the second insight that I gained from reading this is that I fundamentally believe that politics as a raw power struggle is the essence of patriarchy yeah, and not where we should be anymore.
1: Yep, that's what I was saying. I was like, I oh, wait. I reject the premise. I reject the premise. Well, I think it's fair to say that's where we are.
2: That is, yeah. that is true today. And lots of people have contributed to making it so. But that is certainly what Trumpism is about: politics mm-hmm. as a raw contest of power with a winner and a loser, zero sum. All of the things that we talk about often. I reject that as what it should be and what we should be striving for. And I reject the idea that being politically moderate, for example, is a contribution to that system or is hopelessly naive or unrealistically optimistic. Because Mm -hmm. I think anytime you want to make real cultural change, whether that's in your family or in a business or in your community or in our large United States of America, The people who have a vision for what can be better have to like set up camp in that vision and pitch a tent and basically live there and invite other people to come live with them. And so I would all day take the criticism of being unrealistic because I think any kind of positive change seems unrealistic at first. But to me... It is so patriarchal to stay in this position of believing that politics must be a raw power struggle. That's where people lose me in conversation, when it becomes everything with this position must be wrong because I want my people in charge wielding the same kind of power and authority. And I think what you and I talk about with nuance is – There is never going to be somebody in authority who's perfect. And -hmm. our conversations are always going to matter. And what we could get to instead of a raw power struggle is a collaboration. And that is not to discount serious issues like racial inequality, like LGBTQ rights. There are issues where we do have to plant a flag and say, this is where I stand on this issue. And I cannot accept a compromise on this issue. We can still do that in a nuanced approach to politics as something other than raw power struggle. But because we've decided that politics today is nothing but raw power struggle, we do that on every issue. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm against. And that's what being moderate means to me. It's not that I'm moderate on every issue saying, let's negotiate with people who believe that immigrants are a dire threat to our nation. I don't believe that. And I'm willing to put my flag down and say, I don't have room to talk about our neighbors from Honduras and Guatemala and Nicaragua this way. I don't. Yeah, I will put my flag down on that. But I will talk with you all day about the tax code. I will talk mm-hmm. with you. I will come to the table on healthcare in good faith, saying, let's roll up our sleeves and figure this out.
1: Well, and I think this is related to an email we got from a listener who said that they heard a professor, I think they were at a conference, Shauna Pearson-Merkowitz from the University of Rhode Island pointed out that we have a tendency to sensationalize trends and her view is that despite claims that we are living in the most divisive, polarized time our country has ever seen, the reality is that our country has been filled with times of incredible tension and literal physical violence, the Constitutional Convention, the Civil War, the 60s, etc. But we've always managed to get through it. Unfortunately, it often takes a true crisis in order to reach a point of compromise and unity in her view, but the point remains that polarization and ebbs and flows over the course of time and we do always find come together when it counts and this listener said I'm whether I'm curious as to whether you have thoughts about this point it seems to me that though her argument isn't invalid maybe are we conflating polarization with nastiness in terms of how we talk to each other the terms we use to describe people and the uniformed claims we make willingness to dismiss each other without really listening to me that seems to be of what has gotten worse even if the actual opinion themselves aren't necessarily more divergent than they have been in the past I mean I think people were really mean during the Civil War <laughs> that's when the senator's were like beating each other with canes. They were pretty nasty. Um, but I think like what you said, I I agree that this is something that we've done because it is a raw power struggle over and over at certain points in our country and we perhaps are sensationalizing this trend, but I hope we sensationalize it like you said and decide like maybe there's another way, maybe we don't have to keep on this stinking merry-go-round where We things get a little bit better and our quality of life improves we don't have a crisis to unite us So we decide that the real enemy is within you know, like maybe we could just I don't know not do that anymore and figure out a better way to engage in our politics that aren't this constant raw power struggle. Because if it's a raw power struggle, then that means we're competing against each other. When really we—I mean, I think the point we make is that we're all on the same team. Like, we are. I know that we have conversations, and there are moments when I do feel like there are two Americas, and I'd be lying if I said that I didn't. But whether how whether I feel that way or not, as I've said on this podcast before, like, nobody's going anywhere It doesn't really matter. Like, I don't think I don't think any states have any immediate plans to leave the union. So we need to figure out a better way. And I think so much of the conversation that is different around this period in time as it was to a certain extent in the Industrial Revolution is that some of our institutions are going through fundamental changes. And I sure as heck hope that our politics and our government is one of them and we can think about new and different ways to engage with each other and to create change that don't have to follow these tired patterns. I think that part of what makes it feel
2: nastier now is just that everybody has a microphone. So it's amplified. It's in our faces constantly. Anytime you choose to participate in being a a consumer of news, for example, you pick up your phone and you can hear where everybody is. So, it's hard to get away from that. I think Mm -hmm. a corollary to that is that our expectations of that engagement are way out of whack. Um, Bryn, our listener who we just adore, was sending us an article today from Vox about people who were paid to follow folks of the other political persuasion on Twitter. And the results of that showed that people actually became more polarized, not less. Well, of course they did. If all you do, is exit your echo chamber, you're just going to get angrier because there is work required in advance of that to build relationships that are worth sustaining through disagreement. But if you just drop into what feels like another universe politically, you're, because, again, this we're in this patriarchal structure, and let me make that connection if you aren't there with me, I think of it as patriarchy because my definition of patriarchy is Believing that power only exists when it's wielded over other people. And I'm not mad at men about that. I just think that's where we are as a society. And we have given men power defined by their ability to wield it over other men and women. And I think that that's how our government views itself right now. Republicans only have power if they are able to wield it over and against Democrats and vice versa. So because that's our framework, if you just drop into the other side on social media, you are likely to hear the denigration of your own viewpoint more than the amplification of the ideas of the other side, right? You're not likely to learn anything because we're just coalescing around my team versus your team. And we can do better than that. But it is going to require a lot of work and a lot of relationship building, And maybe we are into America's. Fine. Let's talk about whether that's where we want to be long term. If we just flip the switch from Republican dominance to Democratic dominance, I don't think we're going to like that result either. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm not going to vote for Democrats in this midterm election. I am. Because I do believe that that is the, the anecdote that we need to at least have some check on executive power in the world we find ourselves in right now. But I'm talking way down the field. I think there is a place for nuance. I think there is a place for subtlety even and moderation and all of the civility, all of the words that are getting kicked around right now, because those are the building blocks to get out of the premise
1: of politics as a raw exercise of power. Right ending on a positive note. And I think an excellent ending to this conversation is I think the most important piece of this puzzle is having people in positions of power that look and think very differently than people in positions of power have traditionally looked and thought. And so went around our social media, went around all the social media. I have never seen a viral clip on C-SPAN as viral as this one. Friend of the pod, former guest on our podcast and current congressional candidate, Abigail Spanberger, closing statement at her recent debate has gone viral. And for good reason, because it is amazing. It is amazing. We're going to play just a little section of that for you right now.
3: And so I question again whether Congressman Bratt knows which Democrat, in fact, he's running against. Because I am not the Democrat who supported single payer in the primary, I am not Nancy Pelosi, and I am not President Barack Obama. I am a woman who grew up in Henrico County, who grew up in this community, who was taught service, hard work, and a commitment to the belief that the American people can be anything. And we will lead the way in this world, and that's who I am. I returned home four years ago because I wanted to get my kids closer to my parents, closer to my in-laws, closer to my family and I am committed to this community, I am committed to making it stronger and I am committed to policies that make sense and that are fiscally responsible because to me it is absolutely hypocritical that we would have someone stand on stage talk about fiscal responsibility after adding 1.9 trillion dollars to the deficit, after voting against hurricane relief, after voting against the omnibus omnibus bill after voting against budget after budget because he didn't want to add to the deficit. However, when it came time to give $42 billion in tax rates to pharmaceutical companies, there he was. I want to serve this community. It's the community that made me who I am. And I ask for your vote on November the 6th. Abigail Spanberger is my name.
1: I did not realize how long I had been waiting as a Democrat for someone to express that. Oh, my goodness.
2: Mm. It was surprisingly meaningful to me too because it was an announcement of I'm not going to do this game yep I feel that way every time I watch an Amy McGrath ad too because I Mm -hmm. feel like Amy McGrath is saying I am not going to do it your way I know you're trying to bait me into doing this your way but I'm not going to and that makes me feel so hopeful about what could be if a critical mass These women get to Congress. I was having a conversation with somebody the other day, and I, I was saying that I am so hopeful that the kinds of women we've been interviewing on the podcast get elected and go to Washington and put at the top of their list restoration of some trust with the American people. And I would love to see them do something like immediately restore the filibuster for judicial nominees. Just say, we are going back to our norms now. We are going to do this right. And the person was like, that's absolutely not going to happen. And I understand that perspective. But when I hear things like this from Abigail Spanberger, from Amy McGrath, from Stephanie Rose Spalding, you know, all the women that we've talked with, I think that is possible if enough of these women get elected.
1: Isn't there, isn't there social science that... It's not enough – like isn't there all this social science sort of on tokens? Like it's not enough to have one person of a diverse perspective. It's not enough to have one woman that you see change when you reach a certain proportion of women. So it's not – you can't just have the Abigail Spanberger. You have to have Abigail Spanberger and Amy McGrath and Haley Stevens. You have to have all these people – and I, I don't know, I feel like we're looking at that. I feel like the numbers support that that's what, I mean, I feel like you see that shift already in candidates because there's such a strong, you see things like um, campaign finance clarifications that you can use the money to pay for childcare. That didn't happen until there was a certain number of female candidates. You see that You see that in the way they're advertising and in the way they're talking about issues because I think there's this, this critical mass of female candidates. I can't believe that that won't, also happen when there's this critical mass of female congresspeople.
2: I think that's right. And and you hear it in what they're choosing to talk about. You have Democratic women talking about fiscal responsibility more than any Republican has legitimately over the past year. You have Democratic women talking about foreign policy and America's standing in the world with more credibility than Lindsey Graham has lately. hmm you know, it it just makes me hopeful because I feel like they are saying, I don't have to wield power over somebody else to hold it. Look at how powerful yeah. that statement was. She wasn't being critical of Nancy Pelosi or Barack Obama, and she wasn't dogging her opponent. She was just saying, I have power because of who I am. Thank you. And it was amazing. Mm-hmm. Oh, so amazing. Also amazing is my conversation with Christina Dalcher, I think, because I love her – thoughts on power as well and what happens when we come at power with a sense of certainty about our relief. So we'll take a quick break and then stick around for that conversation after the break.
1: Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dot com slash pantsuit.
2: Christina, I think you are the first fiction author that we have had on Pantsuit Politics. And I think as people hear about the book that you've written, they'll understand why. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and whatever prompted you to write a dystopian novel about the rights of women?
0: Sure. Well, um, I like to think of Vox actually as a dystopian novel about government interference and rights in general. Although, of course, since I chose a female protagonist to be oppressed under this regime, it's, uh, it does certainly come through that that Vox is about the rights of women. Um, I'm a linguist, and that, uh, I've got my doctorate in linguistics. I love language, And I really love thinking about ways in which I can bring language into my fiction writing. So when I had an opportunity to write a short story that needed to have some speculative fiction elements, needed to have a female protagonist, and that protagonist needed to have skills that were very central to the plot, I started thinking a little bit more about how I could work with some of the previous fiction I'd written and create something longer, create more of a story with, with a much more fleshed-out character arc than one usually has the opportunity to include in a very short piece of flash fiction, say a 500- or 700-word story. So that's how that's how Vox was born. Really, I wanted to talk about language loss first, but then it really made sense to try and bring some, uh, a little bit of politics into it as well. And and effectively, I asked this question, what would happen if some faction in our country decided that it would really be best for everyone if we reverted to this Victorian era culture of domesticity?
2: That begins to answer one question that I had as I have been reading about you, I wondered whether Vox was born more of love or of fear, knowing about your um, interest in language and your professional work. I wondered if, if, the, if it really began with the fear surrounding our political climate or, or your love of language.
0: Oh, that is such a hard question, Beth. Um, you know, in some ways, it's, it's both. Really, the, the genesis of Vox started even before that short story, which did have some political and feminist elements to it. The short story, I'm sorry, the flash fiction, though, was just a kind of doomsday scenario about language loss in general. So, you know, if we could imagine some bio agent that rendered all humans languageless, effectively overnight, then I asked myself, what would the world look like? I mean, would we be able to continue? And I think that answer has to be a no. I don't think that we would be, I think with that, with that element of our humanity removed from us, I think we would be in dire straits and, and probably not not go on for very long. So um, obviously there was a love of language that spurred me to introduce this idea into that flash fiction piece, and then also a love of language that made me go on with that and imagine a world where only you know, half of the people were uh, women and, and, and female children were silenced, and then I did actually pay attention, I mean, I paid quite a bit of attention to politics, I I still do, Um, unlike my protagonist, Jean, (laughs) who who decided uh, that it was a lot more fun just staying in her research bubble, but I did think about how women's voices were going so much stronger recently that there had to be some people out there in the world who were saying to themselves, "Oh, enough already, just be quiet. Right. So, um, so I don't know whether I was, I was really fearful that that would happen. And I'm, I have to say, I'm, I'm not actually afraid that we're going to get some wrist counters slapped on, uh, to us, like wristwatches, and have them count our words. I don't think that's going to happen. But the the speculative nature of of fiction does you know, force us to ask these "what if" questions. Well, what if it did happen? What what would we do then? Or what would this woman, Jean, my protagonist, do?
2: My friend Megan just finished your book, and I was talking with her about it this morning, and she said, "You know, I've I read." 1984 this year you know i've gone back to fahrenheit 451 i just read this book i read the handmaid's tale again and we read as a way of finding empathy is that what you want us to feel here what what do you as an author of one of these books want us to come away with
0: another excellent question i think i think we read for a lot of different reasons um i i personally like horror I've had a long love affair with the horror genre. And, um, and as I think everyone who knows me is aware, I'm, I've had a long love affair with Stephen King, and who I think really defines horror uh, much more than any author that I've, I've ever read. His books are quite frightening on, on a number of different levels. And one of the reasons I go back to them is because I find them to be rather escapist. So, so they they instill a lot of fear in me, but but they also remove some of the real fears that I have about you know life, about what's going on in the world around me, uh, you know about illness or or the loss of a loved one and things like that. So I find them very escapist. Um, Vox obviously is is it has some. Some scenes, which I think are very horrific, but it's not a straight horror novel. It's, it's much more of a thriller, and like other dystopian novels, the ones that you mentioned, for instance, even Aldous Huxley's *Brave New World* comes to mind. Um, these are, I think, they do two things at one time. They they show us what the world could be, and maybe raise our awareness a little bit so that we can change the course of events. But they also show us an extreme version of the world in which we live that serves to maybe let us enjoy a little bit of relaxation in a way, because we're not there yet. And and we probably aren't going to be there. So on on the one hand, there's a call for change or a call to pay attention in these novels. On the other there's, there's something soothing about them because they show us a life that is so horrific. I mean, look at Winston Smith, for instance. What a dismal, dismal existence that man has in 1984. And and that enables us to look around and say, aha, okay, yep, we might think it's really bad, but it's not. So let's be realistic. So does the, they do two things at the same time, in my mind.
2: So you... Talked a minute ago about how your protagonist is not very politically engaged, that she lives in her bubble and she didn't speak up when she could. And that becomes um, a theme throughout the book, her her own role in creating the world she finds herself living in. Can you talk a little bit more about how you developed that idea and what you really want to say as we watch the Women's March and we watch the reaction to Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation. I mean, there are so many living examples of when do I speak and how do I speak credibly? And I just wonder how you're processing all of that, having created this bubble for your character.
0: Sure. Well, I, I think that I, I can't speak for everyone, but Jean, my my protagonist, certainly lived part of her life doing exactly what i did for for some period of time which was focusing on the uh, you know the research that's in front of her the here and now expecting that nothing is going to change on the outside everything is going to continue to roll along with it uh, with this momentum in in a in a positive direction and i think what we've what we've seen throughout history, is that that doesn't happen necessarily, of course. There are revolutions, there are, there are uh, you know, small grassroots organizations that crop up seemingly from nowhere and, you know, gain a lot of strength and sort of start snowballing. So, uh, th- so there is a message in Vox to pay attention and to go vote, um, to and and when I say that I, I I'm not talking about voting one way or voting the way that I do or voting the way that the the other character in in Vox would have Jackie who is you know very obviously a kind of radical liberal um, I I think that our responsibility is to pay attention and, and you know vote with our conscience and it was fascinating when I when I realized after I'd written. Box, although I had ideas about this before, because I certainly have talked to a lot of people, a lot of friends and colleagues who just don't vote, right? You know, they, they just don't. Uh, they don't do it for presidential elections, and they really don't do it for, uh, for smaller local elections. So after I wrote the book, when I found out that the turnout percentage for, for the big elections, the presidential contests... Mm-hmm was really around two-thirds, you know, 60 to 65%. I was kind of shocked. Um, you know, that means that there are still a lot of people who are maybe not letting their voices be heard. And I I think that we have a you know we have a responsibility to do that in 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 obviously in, in you know in responsible ways as well. You know, we have a responsibility to inform ourselves of what's going on and then to take action. So, um, so I, I do hope that that comes across.
2: One of the things that Sarah and I really believe is that it's important to speak about politics and it's important to speak about how we speak and that the way we communicate with one another is central to the kind of world we're creating. I wonder, as you consider... The characters in your book and where people start to fall into some of the rhetoric of the religious right, um, how you might invite listeners to consider that in their own families? How can we have these conversations in a better way?
0: Yeah. So there is a very, very extreme faction of the religious right in Vox that has a certain agenda, and it is... What we've seen, obviously, over the past week, as well, is that people are not talking. Um, and I think that we've, we've gone to extreme ends of the political spectrum in, in recent years. I mean, I, as a child of the 70s, really a baby of the 60s, but a child of the 70s, I can honestly say that I do not remember any distinct difference between republicans and democrats uh, when i was growing up and and some of the people i talked to say the same thing uh obviously there, there were differences but but i think there there was more of a nuance to these differences they were not so extremist mm-hmm. so it's tricky because i do think we've gotten to the point where our our first tendency is not to listen but just shout and and to silence, you know, in some ways as well. Um, there are, and, and I'm, I'm aware that you sort of come from the, from the right, Beth, uh, that Sarah comes from the left. And I think, um, and I'm <laughs> somewhere very much in the middle <laughs> of those two. But what I've seen, being in the middle is, is difficult too, because you'd think that I would kind of, you know, be okay from the standpoint of both sides. But in fact, what I've found is that I'm I'm often not, and many of the people I know who are, are libertarian find themselves in the same situation. They're you know one one side is just so um, absolutely sure of their correctness that nobody else can possibly be correct, also because that would be a contradiction, and we can't have that. But of course, there there aren't really any contradictions, right? I mean, if we want to go with, you know, Aristotelian politics and Aristotelian kind of epistemology, you know, ways of thinking. There are no contradictions. Nobody, they can't both be right. And how do we deal with this in our own families? Well, I think we have to, I think we have to talk. And I'm very fortunate that I I don't have kids, but I I do have, you know, a life partner in, in my husband who is, absolutely open to talking and and it's it's fascinating sometimes watching him you know talk to people from both sides and i i try to you know learn as much as i can from that because he's got the the calmness of a lawyer uh whereas i think a lot of people don't (laughs) and it's so easy to allow things to elevate to just screaming and, and effectively, that screaming is might as well be, shut up, you. I'm not listening to you. My voice is the only one that counts. But of course, if we have people from in the left side and the right side and also in the middle who, who, are, who are saying my voice is the only one that counts, then then we've got this inconsistency. We've got these contradictions. and We have to get over them somehow.
2: Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. Yeah, it's interesting as you're talking about uh, not remembering a lot of difference between the two parties. I think that's what Sarah and I are really trying to find again, where there, where there are nuances on policy, but we share a common vision of what the United States is. And I'm noticing that we tend to get a tremendous amount of criticism because we are both so moderate in our viewpoints. And I think it's interesting that moderate has become a a source of criticism as though it is not representative of where most people are, and I think that's what you described. I mean, I think a lot about you know clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Like that's how it feels for a lot of right. people. I think um, you know as as you have created a world where that at least one part of that goes to a, a real extreme, and and a lot of us are feeling that pull of extremism now, and you've taken it to a new place.
0: I could have I could have just as easily written a book. Uh, in which, um, let's say, all the right-wing university speakers on campuses had to wear these these wrist counters that silenced them, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I could have written a book where men had to wear the counters, you know, down with the, the patriarchy. Um, I mean, the, so silencing can, in, in Vox, silencing comes from a particular faction. However, um, I believe and I think that this is really the first time that in all of these interviews and in all of this publicity here and in Germany and in Italy and in the UK that I have felt comfortable saying silencing can and does come from everywhere. And it's bad. It's evil. So, you know, I wrote a book that, that you know, it's being called Lots of Things Uh, As you know, but in my mind, the real issue in, in, in Vox is that no one group, and certainly not our government, should be in the business of shutting anyone up. And I do mean anyone. It's not just the case that we only listen to the people who are singing our song. And I and I feel that there's you know sort of a connection here in this moderacy, you know, among you and Sarah and myself. So I feel comfortable saying this. I, I another thing I I'm, I want to um, call attention to, and I found this kind of fascinating. I I don't know whether I actually agree with this theory, but but somebody, a friend of mine who read Vox brought to my attention a theory called the horseshoe effect. And uh, are you aware of this? Are no. You tell and, me more. And, are Sarah aware <laughs> of this? The the idea is that we 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 tend to see, um, and we even you know use use words to kind of reinforce this image. We set, we tend to see politics as uh, linear, as the straight line, and 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 with you know people on the on the extreme right and people on the extreme left, and the horseshoe effect. Uh, the idea behind this is that the farther out you go in either direction actually what happens is you don't end, you don't end up with a straight line reaching from right to left you end up with a line that curves and the ends start converging on themselves toward like
2: authoritarianism
0: Hoshu. exactly mm-hmm. and and that in fact the goals of extremism whichever side we're talking about tend to be similar now of course Nobody wants, nobody on either side wants to admit this, right? Because, you know, a, a, a very, you know, a very, very, you know, left-wing uh, politician would say, what, you're, you're, you're conflating, you know, my theories and my goals with those of fascists, the extreme right-wingers. That can't be true. But in fact, if we look at it in more general terms about, um, about extremism and totalitarianism and basically telling the other side to just get out, there's no room for you, There is kind of a similarity there. And I found that very interesting. That is
2: fascinating. And it really leads to another another thing that I've been thinking about in connection with your book, which is how does the silencing of half the population impact the other half? How much did you think about the men in your book and what impact this had on them?
0: I think I wrote... Um, a number of sympathetic male, sympathetic male characters, which is, it's always quite interesting when I, um, and and also I think I wrote a, a few very complicit female characters um, in this, or at least one. That's the the neighbor and and the neighbor's daughter. Um, it's fascinating that I have received so much different feedback from from readers and. Many readers have, have said, this book makes me want to punch the first man I see. And I'm thinking, well, gee, you know, there were some guys in Vox who were actually okay. You know, we've got Del the Mailman, who is this sort of, uh, you know, Neville Shute-like trustee from the tool room, right? He's, you know, he, he's sort of, you know, whittling away and, and figuring out how to, you know, save his family, how to get these counters off of him, how to be part of the resistance. You know, we've, we've got, we've got the, you know, the Italian lover, Lorenzo, who everybody loves to laugh at, but I just want to kind of hop in bed with him, um, <laughs> <laughs> that, uh, you know, that is, is you know, is, is willing to, to risk everything to, you know, get this, this woman and, you know, and her possibly female child out of the, out of the country We've got, unfortunately, a very passive husband. But we, we, you know, it turns out that Patrick, Jean's husband, is not so passive. Uh, who is doing his best to cope, and he hates it. I mean, you know, even in that first line, it's, it's everything about him seems to be pointing down. Mm-hmm. He carries this around like a weight. I mean, he's not happy about this. There are a ton of people, a ton of men who are not happy about this, but there are also women who are there are some sort of stepford wife like women in vox who think this is a great thing let's go back to the halcyon days of the 1950s when father knew best this will be good for everyone no more stress no more work you know we'll just be domestic so there's i don't think i don't think we can say that the female characters in vox are all good and the male characters in vox are all evil and and that parallels life doesn't it I mean, which is why perhaps we're all moderates. That we, don't, we don't see the world or, or any individual in the world as completely evil or completely good.
2: I think that's so well said and, and such an important aspect of what you've written, because I do worry that especially the conversation we're having about sexual assault in the country right now that, that we are really making a lot of assumptions about where everyone is coming from. And I have to say, I've been shocked, but I have seen some of the most vigorous defenses of Brett Kavanaugh in my in my personal life, not in Congress, coming from women. And I think shocked. you're on to something very important when you talk about women who are complicit and embrace this sort of repression.
0: Well, sure. And, and of course we, we have to, we always have to ask ourselves, you know, is, is this repression, um, you know, what really is going on here? Can we be 100% sure in either direction? Um, I, I, it's very, very difficult to say. I think it's, I think it's impossible for anyone to be 100% sure of anything. Um, and and that I I don't want to go really Kantian or anything because I, I do actually I do actually have uh, you know a, 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 a pretty you know good sense of you know epistemology and you know how we know what we know but of course we only know what we have evidence for we only know what we can see and touch and taste and feel and and so I think it's important to um, you know to really consider that I also read a fascinating article in. Oh boy! I wish I could tell you where it was. About about women who uh, are in you know who do, do support Kavanaugh, and you know how could this be? And, and it was interesting because the general idea was that there are there are women who view themselves you know first as independent women, and they 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 look at themselves very independently as as just as as discrete entities. Then there are also women. Who look at themselves as part of something, part of a family, or part of a marriage, and, um, and the, the idea behind this article, and I'm I'm not necessarily uh, you know agreeing with it. I'm just I'm saying that I thought it it gave us some interesting food for thought with respect to this question: How could a woman say X? That <clears throat> that there are women who, for instance, uh, a married woman, not that she's letting herself be subsumed. Into the into the man in her relationship, but that she views herself or that she views the two of them as part of a whole so that, for instance, an attack on one is an attack on the other. And I found that kind of interesting. Um, You know, when you when you think about the fact that that obviously, you know, women who come forward and speak, they have families and they get attacked. And, you know, are they the only ones being attacked or are their children being attacked? Are their husbands being attacked? And the same thing with you know with men uh, when they face accusations are they the only ones being attacked so so it made that article made it a little bit easier to see why um, why this division is not that uh, it's not a bright line you know that's separating the the two genders or anybody who identifies as male and female it it talked about you know uh, maybe a, a slightly fuzzier line.
2: Well, I think that's so interesting. And one of the things that I really appreciated in your book was that you have a character who is a mom to both daughters and sons and is navigating these different relationships, caring about her daughter, who now can only use a hundred words a day, and still loving these boys, you know, who don't have that restriction. One of the moments that happened early on, so I'm not giving anything away, um when you're when she, recognizes that her sons are not asking yes or no questions, they're asking questions that would require more words. And she thinks, you know, I choose to believe that they just don't understand, not that they're baiting right. us. Oh, I thought that was a really right. compelling moment in how you have to kind of conceptualize the world when we break when we break the sexes apart in this way.
0: Exactly. I mean, does this mean that you start hating your your husband and your, and your sons? I mean, even Stephen, Jean's uh, oldest son, who has, you know, just absolutely embraced this pure movement, this return to that culture of domesticity, for all kinds of reasons. I mean, some of which I think are almost forgivable because like, he's young, he's got peer pressure, he's he's being. I mean, children, children are taught things. Children aren't born thinking a certain way; they're 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 indoctrinated. Um, you know, this is how the Hitler youth started, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you, you know, do you, don't we we I. I mean, I've always had some sympathy for that poor telegraph boy, Rolf, in The Sound of Music. You know, I I, I could never think of him as truly evil, even though he was on the side of evil. Um, But I I have to say, oh, my God, he was young. I mean, and he's being fed this line. And, of course, this is at a time in in kids' lives where they have this desperate need to belong and to fit in and to find themselves. I mean, they're not... Maybe admit they're not independent thinkers yet. I don't want to say that of all young people just because they're young—that would be wrong. But there, there has to be some element of that, and and so I don't know if there was ever a moment in Vox where I, I showed Jean as truly hating her son. I mean, she slapped him uh, and she you know, she spoke down to him even, but I don't think she hated him. I think she had some kind of empathy, and and maybe that's. Maybe that's a good message. You know, maybe we, you know, not that we need to embrace our enemies, um, you know, unconditionally. But I, I think we can only understand the devil if we have a little bit of sympathy for him or her.
2: Yeah, I love what you I love the sound of music. So I love what you said about Rolf, too, and how we all live in context. And we process that context in different ways. And I think just trying to understand the context everyone comes from is is a beautiful way to wrap up this discussion of a very compelling, timely book. So thank you so much for spending time with us to talk about it.
0: Well, thank you for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. And I think that your mission is absolutely fantastic. I'll be, I'll be making sure that I subscribe to your podcast.
2: Thank you so much. And Vox is available everywhere. It's all over Apparently the place. so. <laughs> <laughs> Where can people learn more about you and your flash fiction and your other work, Christina?
0: Sure. I've got links to almost all of my flash fiction up on my website. Much of this has been published either in print or and or electronically. So I am at ChristinaDalcher.com. And I am sometimes on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram under the handle at C.V. Dalcher, So that's Charlie Victor Delcher.
2: We will include all of those links in our show notes. Thank you again. We
0: hope you enjoyed
2: today's podcast. And thank you so much to Christina Dalcher for being here. We'll be back with you on Tuesday. Until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Pantsuit Politics is produced by
1: Dylan Garvin. Elise Knapp is our production assistant. Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers, Tracy Putoff, Tim Miller, Cherry Haas, Nicholas Holland, and Chad Silvers. To get more Pantsuit Politics, you can become a supporter and receive special bonus features at patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Pantsuit Politics, and sign up to receive our weekly newsletters at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com.